Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. It is, at least right now, it is December 11, 2020. I mentioned that because we are now just three days away from the Electoral College casting its vote. Um, trust me, the Supreme Court is not <laughs> is not going to be delaying that vote. You may be listening to this on Saturday or Sunday, so you know more than I do. Look, before we get uh, going with today's program, we have a very special guest, uh, Congressman Connor Lamb from, from Pennsylvania, a centrist uh, congressman. We've really been looking forward to talking with him. But I wanted to say a couple of things uh, about uh, the Bulwark and Bulwark Plus. We we really appreciate your support. And I just wanted to put in a word for what we're doing with Bulwark Plus. We're very, very excited about this, and we're really kind of blown away by how popular it's become. Uh, We started the Bulwark almost exactly two years ago, and we started it on a fly, basically a shoestring with a very, very small staff. It was basically the digital staff for the Weekly Standard, which had just been killed by its owners. And to be honest with you, we didn't know how long this was going to last. When I signed up initially, it was about two years ago to the day. It was for just three months because we didn't know whether we were going to be around. And, well, you you know what's happened over the last couple of years. The bulwark has exceeded our wildest expectations. And this podcast has exceeded my wildest expectations. We have had more than 28 million downloads. And I think that's, well, frankly, I think it's because we had something to say. And in the middle of all of this insanity, we found an audience of folks ranging from the center right to the center left, maybe even beyond that. And we've worked really hard to put together an all-star group of writers, editors, artists, and, and podcasters. But the fight is obviously not over. And we don't want to overwhelm the site with ads or pop-ups. You know what I mean there. So that's where Bulwark Plus comes in. It's a way to join us and support what we're doing and to become part of what we are all doing here, to be part of this community. This podcast and the main website are going to remain free, but Bulwark Plus members have access to our daily newsletters, My Morning Shots newsletter and JVL's Triad. And we also have a bunch of podcasts for Bulwark Plus members and something that's become very, very popular our weekly live streams where you can watch us having our debates and our discussions. We bring our best and brightest together for this live video conversation, sometimes includes a top-notch, very provocative guest. So I really want you to consider joining Bulwark Plus if that's possible or giving membership as a gift, maybe for Hanukkah or Christmas. It's $10 a month or $100 a year, but for that, you're going to be getting hundreds of newsletters, updates, podcasts, great takes, live streams, etc. And I think you'll be part of something that's becoming pretty great and got a lot to do. And by the way, speaking of what we're going to be doing, we're going to be continuing to push back on the crazy. I mean, this has got to be number one on our mission statement, whether it's on the site or on this podcast. So uh, speaking of the crazy, can we just check in with Lou Dobbs? Lou, Lou, Lou Dobbs is just, you want to talk about a dead ender. I think everybody in the world has figured out by now that um, Sidney Powell is is nuts, and her the the, the crack the Kraken is I mean uh, it's, it's just it's just ludicrous. It's been slapped down by every court it's been in. But Lou Dobbs is a true believer. Let's play Lou, Lou Dobbs talking to Sidney Powell. Yes, well, the American people are going to have to insist on paper ballots with real identification. That's going to be one of the well, key things. Well, that's going to be great for the stop. next. I'm, I'm not even. I'm Sydney. I've got to tell you, I'm not even going to contemplate the next election. <laughs> I'm not even contemplating the January 5th election in Georgia. 
the hell with that. If the people of Georgia are dumb enough after what they have gone through in the November 3rd election to then go toward January 5th and a runoff and think that changing nothing will change the outcome, then the people of Georgia aren't half as smart as I believe them to be. And I believe the patriots in Georgia should stop this nonsense now. It is not something that to be decided about uh, over who do you favor, which party, which uh, candidate. This is now about faith in the electoral system in one specific state that may control the destiny of this country. And by God, it's too important for anyone. And I don't care what party you're in. I don't care whether you're an independent. This is too important to act as if nothing happened on November 3rd and to pretend that there will be a different outcome on January 5th. It's idiotic. Okay, idiot. What what exactly does he want patriots to do? I mean, this this is where it's getting scary. Eric Erickson uh, posted a a link to a website that's been taken down now, which was put up by activists who are doxing Republican officials in Georgia, clearly for assassination. I mean, this is this is this is scary stuff. Uh, by the way, if you check out my newsletter, um, I, I have a I have a column on M- MSNBC Daily about the Chris Krebs loss. Remember Chris Krebs? He's the former cybersecurity chief who was fired for pushing back on Donald Trump's conspiracy theories. And uh, Joe DeGeneva had gone on Newsmax and said that Chris Krebs should be taken out and shot, drawn and quartered. Well, Krebs is suing. And I don't know that he's going to win that case because these cases are hard. But he lays out this pattern of intimidation and bullying uh, and the threats of violence that have been stoked by Trump and his allies. And I got to tell you. It is it is scary, crazy stuff. OK, so a little bit more crazy here. Uh, F- Fox and friends sort of going through this whole process of uh, this, this lawsuit. And by the way, just a reminder, there's no way that this lawsuit is going anywhere. This lawsuit is is a, is a legal joke. And I think the people who a lot, a lot of the folks uh, who are charlatans, I think, understand that, that it's a joke, uh, that, that there's no way the Supreme Court is going to take up this frivolous, clownish, anti-democratic, seditious abuse of the judicial process. They're, they're, they're just not going to be doing that. But there was a little bit of excitement on Fox and Friends about this. Four states right there because um, they went, they, they decided to change the laws without talking to the legislature. So people are up in arms about this. In fact, 17 other states, 17 have filed a brief with the Supreme Court. Missouri, Alabama, uh, Arkansas, Florida, uh, Indiana, Kansas, Louisiana, just to name a few. This means if those four states, if they drop those mail-in ballots because they say it was unconstitutional, that's 62 electoral votes. That could shift. That could change the results of this election. Absolutely. But then again, all of the legal mail-in votes, I mean, if you if you cast a legal mail-in vote, you would be disenfranchised. And it's like, wait, I followed all the rules. Why would they do it? Why would you punish me for the fact that my legislature jumped the ball and did not, you know, they what uh, Ken Paxton is alleging is that each of those four states screwed up their own elections. Uh, listen, these attorney generals apparently are going to have lunch with the president today at 1230. Mm-hmm. He's going to give them his point of view. They've got their point of view. Brian talked to a couple of them earlier on Fox and Friends. Yeah. OK, so a little detail there that, yeah, you might be able to wipe out those electoral votes. But, you know, there's a lot of people whose votes are going to be disenfranchised. They're going to be disenfranchised. A little bit of a detail here. Uh, I mean, this is I know that we've kind of gotten used to being disillusioned about the things that they're doing. But 
when you see something this cynical, this hypocritical, that you have the, the Republican Party and the conservative movement embracing this effort to have five unelected justices throwing out the votes of tens of millions of Americans. I mean, it is breathtaking. And my only theory is that a lot of the people signing on to this know that it's complete bullshit, that they know that this Ken Paxton lawsuit is just, I mean, it's, it, it is, to say that it's, it, it's, it's ridiculous is, 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 is almost understating how bad it is. And people are starting to notice that maybe Ken Paxton, who shall we say is uh, ethically challenged, facing indictment, uh, FBI investigations, might actually be doing all of this because he's trolling for a pardon. That, that's what Ben Sass said, I think was interesting. I mean, not everybody is going along with this. I think that's kind of the, the, the good news. He said, I, I suspect the Supreme Court swats this away. And Sass said that it looked to him like Paxton filed this as a PR stunt rather than a lawsuit in an attempt to gain a pardon from President Trump, which is pretty tough. But then, of course, there's Ted Cruz. Ted Cruz, who had volunteered to argue the Pennsylvania, the, the challenge of the Pennsylvania votes in front of the Supreme Court. Well, that got smashed down. And now he's uh, raising his hand and saying, hey, I'm, I'm willing to do the Texas Supreme Court. We, our, our, our colleague Jim Swift pulled out this old soundbite from, from Ted Cruz. Now, Jim, this is, this is Ted Cruz after he won the Iowa caucus back in 20, 2016. Uh, th th this is the old Ted Cruz talking about uh, being a good loser and a sore loser. Let's play that. Well, listen, it, it is no surprise uh, that Donald is throwing yet another temper tantrum, or if you like, yet another trumper tantrum. Uh, it seems his reaction to everything is to throw a fit, to engage in insults. And I understand that Donald finds it very hard to lose, that, that, that he finds that very difficult for him. But at the end of the day, the Iowa people spoke. Donald Trump guaranteed a victory in Iowa, and then he lost. And he doesn't like that. And his reaction is that he breaks down. It, it, it is. And nothing has changed. This is the thing about Donald Trump. He is who he has always been. Lying liars lie. Petulant babies whine. This is the same guy. The, 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 the remarkable thing about Ted Cruz is that Ted Cruz knows all of this. Just like Lindsey Graham knows all of this. It's in their heads. And yet somehow they managed to pivot from going, this is the most awful human being on earth to, yes, master, what can we do? How can I? Yes, I know you called my wife ugly. I know you said my father killed JFK. I know you are a pathological liar. But you know what? I want to go into the United States Supreme Court and tell the United States Supreme Court that they should be so activist that they would throw out a legitimate Democratic election. This is what makes this so head spinning and why it feels sometimes like a gut punch. So we have something different today, and we have a very, very special guest, and I'm very anxious to talk with, with him. On the Weekend Bulwark podcast is Democratic Congressman Connor Lamb from Pennsylvania. First of all, Congressman, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be with you. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on because I don't know if you realize it, but I, I will often invoke your name as a as a centrist Democrat in terms of this, the debate about uh, what the Democratic Party is, where it should be going. So your, your name has been checked on this podcast uh, many, many times, but it's it, it, it's good to talk with you. 
Well, it's been it's been checked in much less reputable places as well many times. So honestly, this is a, this is a good one for me. Okay, I want to talk about I want to talk about the the Democratic Party and what's going on in Congress right now. But but we have to start with the crazy, and the crazy is one hundred and six Republican members of the House of Representatives signed on to an endorsement of this crazy, frivolous, clownish, anti-democratic, seditious abuse of the judicial process lawsuit that would overturn the the election. This is the Kraken caucus. But what really is kind of the gut punch here is that's a majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives who are endorsing a lawsuit that would nullify the election in my state of Wisconsin in Michigan, Georgia, and in your state of Pennsylvania. So let, let's just talk about that right now, because we are in an amazing moment. So what is what, what does this feel like from ground zero in Pennsylvania, that you have the president of the United States and much of the Republican Party that wants to disenfranchise 7 million voters in Pennsylvania? Right. I mean, for us, it's nothing new. I mean, we've been watching this in in real time for a few years now, uh, at least for me, from my first special election. Uh, we got a lot of Trump attention at that time and, and it's never stopped. So this is this is how they this is how they roll, uh, so to speak. Um, for me, I think, honestly, there was good news in this story buried in there that there were 90 Republicans still in the House who were not willing to sign mm-hmm. that brief. That's a higher number than some might have estimated. Um, and there's some good good members among that group. Um, it's unfortunate, you know. You guys have it, it plowed this ground before about how it just sort of shows you that the old arguments the Republicans used to make about judicial restraint and unelected judges and having an original view of the Constitution that's all totally out the window. Uh, this is a this is a new Republican Party, um, and I think what they stand for in in the light most charitable to them is this idea that they will do absolutely whatever it takes to win and to maintain power. Uh, and that motivates their base in a lot of ways. And I think the challenge to us is to is to continue to reveal uh, what they actually do with that power when they have it. They really are not the party of Donald Trump. They're the party of Mitch McConnell. That, that's hmm. that's the policy that they carry out when you give them power. So that's where this is leading. Well, it is interesting how, how much conservative principle they've been willing to shed, jettison over the last four years. You know, fiscal conservatism, character, free trade, rule of law, American leadership. Um, but but this really is kind of extraordinary because one of the defenses of Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump is always, well, it's always about the judges. It's about it's about uh, the Constitution and all of that. We, because we don't want activist judges. We want uh, judges who will just uphold the Constitution. And, and we wake up today and here you have Trump world, Republican Party pushing for the justices of the Supreme Court to wipe out the results of a presidential election. So, so much for strict constructionism and judicial restraint and so much for federalism and states' rights when you think about what it is they're actually trying to do right now. Yeah. And, you know, you better be careful what you wish for, because I think, um, you know, they've already had multiple Trump appointed and Republican judges kind of take them to task over this stuff. Um, including one here in my home state of Pennsylvania. And what they're doing with this Texas suit is they are inviting the Supreme Court to write a pretty blistering opinion that reveals them for what they are. And that that opportunity was not really presented in some of the other cases that have come up so far, but it really is presented here. Uh, and, you know, they may get exactly what they were asking for all these years, which is an original view of the Constitution that does not say what they wanted to say. Well, tell me just a, very briefly about the politics in Pennsylvania, because the the legislature, the legislature is controlled by Republicans, correct? 
Yes. And they have resisted efforts to uh, you know, vote, vote and re- replace the electors. So at least they haven't gone along with that. But many of them signed a letter to Congress asking Congress to what? To nullify the Pennsylvania vote. What is the political dynamic there? Why would any elected representative in a state like Wisconsin or Pennsylvania ask either the court or Congress to throw out these votes to flip the election, overturn an election? Well, you know, I think it's pretty simple. I think the the Trump people have told them quite publicly that they're taking names. And it's now essentially a competition to see who can prove their loyalty to the Trump movement. Uh, it is interesting that that so many of these people keep landing on ideas where they themselves don't actually have to do it. You know, the, the Pennsylvania legislators aren't actually challenging the electors. They're just asking Congress to. And the members of Congress aren't actually really doing anything. They're just asking the court to. Um, but, you know, they were all just reelected in this same election. And so at the election. end of the day, if they really believe that it was fraudulent and there were problems, uh, my question to them has been, are you going to return your $90,000 plus salary to the Treasury of Pennsylvania when you start collecting it next year? Because uh, we have one of the highest paid legislatures in the country. And, you know, if you think there was so much fraud, I don't see how you would, you know, how you would collect that salary. You made an important point here that I didn't want to gloss over, which is that when Republicans actually have, Republican officials have skin in the game when they ha- have to actually act, either to certify an election, approve an election, or or vote. They've been very, very reluctant to line up behind Trump, but when they can just put out a tweet or sign a letter that doesn't have any effect, they're willing to do that sort of to signal virtue to Trump world. Now, speaking of Trump world, um, for just li- listeners to remind people about the significance of uh, of, of your, your election, you were elected in a special election back in 2018, got a tremendous amount of attention. You flipped a you flipped a district by running as a centrist. Uh, we're just reelected. We're reelected in uh, 2018. Uh, and then we're just. Uh, re-elected in 2020, uh, and your opponent was uh, a very, very, very Trumpy character. Even in Trump standards, he Sean Parnell is very, very Trumpy, and it was a very, very close. It was a very, very close election. Uh, but you've become kind of a symbol for this is how Democrats get elected in swing districts. So first of all, could you just tell me what your district is like? How, how do you characterize the demographics of of your district and what makes it a swing district? Yeah, I mean, uh, Western Pennsylvania, and I've actually represented two districts so far, but they're they're similar. Uh, Western Pennsylvania is industrial heartland. You know, some of it is rural farm country, uh, some of it is coal mining country, some of it is um, steelmaking and former steelmaking area. A lot of natural gas production, a lot of manufacturing still. Um, you know, and then as you get closer and closer into the city of Pittsburgh, like a lot of places throughout the Midwest you're starting to see more sort of uh, healthcare, higher ed, banking, that kind of stuff. It's the type of thing you'd be familiar with coming from Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, but even as the economy changes, you know, some of the jobs change, the values stay the same, uh, you know, and it's a place that was one of the birthplaces of the labor movement. People believe in working very hard for what you get, but, you know, being given a chance to, to work hard and earn a g- good living by the, you know, the way the country sets up its rules. Um, so when, you know, when I ran, uh, the basic thing we tried to do was first go out and listen to people about 
what they thought about politics in Washington. And, and the first thing we learned was <laughs> how upset and disappointed they were with pretty much everybody involved on both sides. And they wanted to see something new and kind of a new energy. And then we, we shaped things off of that. And a lot of the things that happened in that first race still sort of hold true for me today, which is that, uh, first of all, people can distinguish between their member of Congress and between Trump. So, you know, I was a Democrat, proud to be one, uh, come from a long family of Democrats. But I told people in that campaign, I'll work with President Trump to get things done if it's good for this district. And, you know, the typical punditry would have said, uh, no, this campaign is going to be a referendum on Trump. Either the Republican wins because they like Trump or the Democrat wins because they don't like Trump. Well, it turns out the Democrat won and they like Trump. And, you know, we did that. I mean, Trump signed one of my bills like two days before this past election. We kept doing it. Um for years. And, and people in now in 2020 showed us again, that's kind of what they want, you know, when given the opportunity <laughs> to, to pick someone who's a little more in the middle, a little bit more of a deal maker, whether on the Republican or Democratic side. So, did Trump win your congressional district? Uh, this past time, he lost it narrowly. Okay. Um, the previous two times he won it. Yeah. So why did Democrats lose so many seats this year? This was the big surprise of 2020 that, uh, you know, all of the pundits had suggested that the House was going to pick up a bunch of seats. As far as I can tell, every single swing seat that was identified by, say, the Cook Report went to the Democrats. What happened? Well, you know, I think it's I think it's pretty simple. Um, there was something about the Democratic brand as, as a whole that they just weren't buying. And so, you know, there were places like my district, I'd say, where we spent a lot of time and effort showing that uh, while I'm a Democrat, I'm an independent, think through things myself, try to do what's best for the district, you know, that that paid off. But in a lot of areas where it was sort of more classic Democrat versus Republican, they might have picked Biden at the top of the ticket and then gone Republican the whole way down. And below me on the ballot, they went Republican the whole way down mm -hmm. in the state legislative races. And so, I don't know, that doesn't tell me that they love the Republicans so much, you know, and hate Democrats. I think it means, I think people are just grasping for some sense that they're sending a line up to Washington where it's possible to break the gridlock and you'll get people working together. And, you know, in the contest of Biden versus Trump, it obviously went Biden's way because they were tired of the crazy and all that. But people in their own minds must have said, we need to offset this with something because there's something in the liberal air that's coming and we don't like it. And, you know, we got to protect the country against it. And that's that's unfortunate because I don't think it's how a lot of us feel and what we really stand for. But but we lost control of the message for a bunch of reasons. Well, well, talk to me about that, uh, including how defund the police played uh, nationally and in your district. Well, it played horribly. I mean, and that's because it's it's not a real solution to anything. You know, I mean, just let me just give you an example. I, I represent a, a town called Aliquippa, um, historic steelmaking town. Uh, they've had their problems with crime throughout the years. I used to be a prosecutor and I, I prosecuted people in and out of there and, you know, drug and violent crime cases. Uh, a starting police officer in, in Aliquippa makes $12.45 an hour, and they don't get health care benefits. So if you want to talk about solving the problem of police brutality or income inequality or health inequality, uh, we can talk about it. But how are you going to solve that by taking money away from people who aren't earning a whole lot of money anyway? And in a country where, where Warren Buffett makes more money, there, <laughs> pays less mm -hmm. in taxes than his secretary still. So... That's why I say like it just doesn't wash. It doesn't make sense as a solution of what you're going for when we have a lot of other more sort of practical, pragmatic, realistic solutions to talk about. And my personal view is that it wasn't just about the issue of policing. It's just that when you take a when you allow a position like that 
to become so public and associated with your party, it bleeds over into everything else. So they don't trust you on policing, which is important to every family. They're probably not going to trust you on the economy either. Did the law and order issue hurt Democrats? Because there was a big debate when, when you had when you had the the, the urban up, upheaval. Uh, there was some concern um, that this was going to that the Trump and the Republicans were going to be able to exploit it, but it didn't show up immediately in the polls. And so the conventional wisdom became, OK, that's not going to be a problem. I guess I'm looking back at that and going, actually, that was a problem um, because it it did create this sort of sense of are these people really kind of scary if they're going to defund the police? Whose side are they? Whose side are they on? It, it, it fed that narrative about the Democrats being untrustworthy and too far left, didn't it? Yeah. And that's what I, that's kind of what I think is that it wasn't so much about the narrow issue of policing and law and order. Uh, because if it was so much about that, I think Biden would have paid a price and he didn't, but, but Biden has the credibility and history and temperament to be able to say, you know, what it is that most people believe, which is that we can improve the way we deliver policing in this country. We can address a clear history of racial injustice and inequality, uh, without throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? And we can still manage the economy in a practical way. But, um, you know, as you move down the ballot, not everybody has that same stature and, and voters were clearly looking for a way uh, to balance, you know, what they were getting out of this. And so I think that message, it just bled over into our overall brand and trustworthiness. This is all, to me, it's all about trust at the end of the day. In, in an area like this, it used to be strongly democratic people turned away and, and regaining that trust is a long-term project that is just about a lot more than one election. So I, I'm, you've given a lot of thought to this, I'm, I, I'm sure, but the Democratic Party used to be the party of the working guy, the working class, right? I mean, it was the party of you know, Franklin Roosevelt. It was the party of Harry Truman. It was the party of John F. Kennedy and, and, and Lyndon Johnson. How did it become a party that is seen by many of those voters now as elitist? When in fact it was the original working class party, right? That's right. Um, you, know, you can challenge my premise. I mean, that the, the Democratic Party has an elitism image problem. It does, and you know that's where I think people have spilled a lot of ink explaining it, talking about the history, the developments, and all that. That's fine, but but for my purposes, we just need to admit to ourselves now that we have that problem, regardless of of why it you know, developed. We just have to admit right now that there's a problem with the Democratic Party seeming too elitist, too coastal, too cosmopolitan, whatever word you want to use. Uh, and we need to correct it. And that's where a lot of these discussions that spilled over into the press between me and different members and Abigail Spanberger, who's a good friend of mine, okay. you know, it, it really started with an internal caucus discussion about the election that's just happened. And we had leaders and people in our party trying to celebrate the fact that we held on to the House. And, you know, those of us, especially from military backgrounds, were just kind of saying, whoa, this isn't how you do this. Like when you have an, an operation of any kind and it goes wrong and you don't accomplish everything you thought you were accomplished, the first thing you do is self-criticism, question your assumptions, figure out where you want to go next. You don't just claim victory and pretend like, you know, something bad didn't happen. And that's that's all we're trying to say is let's let's look at what the people are clearly trying to tell us. Like we lost working class support across the board in this election, including among African-American and Hispanic communities. So clearly they have a view of not just the economy in general, but their own prospects uh, that has something to do with a better stock market, lower taxes, more of a free market emphasis. And we should be able to 
talk about that. I mean, this is America. Like there's two sides to the story of, of what a free market really is and what really means free. And like I keep saying, I, I don't think Mitch McConnell's view of that makes most people any more free. I think it makes them less free. Uh, and we should be able to deal with that. But if we're mired in discussions of, you know, what, what new government solutions we can bring and how many things for all can we have? I mean, like, that's just not going to get us there, whether you want it to or not. The people are telling us they aren't buying that. And we have to do some pretty serious soul searching to try to fix that. You, you know, I, I, I should have this in front of me, because I was I was looking through uh, uh, President Barack Obama's new book, and he talks about that that quote from uh, his his first campaign where he was caught on tape in San Francisco talking about people in Pennsylvania uh, clinging to their guns and their Bibles was something like that. And he recognized that was, that was a gaffe. He, he recognized that that was, that was a mistake that that fed into this narrative of, of looking down on those voters of elitism. And he clearly has given a lot of thought to what he should have said, uh, to, you know, white working class voters, uh, who, you know, maybe financially struggling, not sure where they fit in, um, you know, feel that they are being judged all of, all, all the time. So you know, let's talk about that a little bit, because I mean, that was one of those moments, and I think he regrets it very much, that did sort of seal the democratic shift to, you know, when you're at the cocktail parties in San Francisco, you're talking about guns and Bibles and bitter clinging back in Pennsylvania. That's right. I mean, and look, we all, we all make mistakes. Uh, I certainly have made them and said things that weren't exactly what I meant. And, you know, sometimes I think, people on the democratic side get frustrated, you know, feeling that we hold ourselves to a standard that the Republicans don't. But I think, you know, in, in president Obama's reelect in 2012, they did a lot of those things successfully to, to Mitt Romney who had made mm -hmm. comments that were just blatantly against the working class. And so, uh, to me, what it comes back to is, uh, I'm not going to be an expert in, in, you know, this whole, whole sort of national game and what you want to do, but just here in, in Western Pennsylvania campaigning successfully, got to listen to these folks and, and get to know what kind of life they're living and what they're, they value. That's the job of a representative. And growing up around here, it's just, it's just not unusual that <laughs> people would have a lot of reverence for their gun or their Bible. A lot of Democrats do too, you know, and it's not just those two issues, you know, uh, natural gas production was re a really mm -hmm. large focus of this past campaign in Pennsylvania and the fracking Trump was telling all these lies about fracking. Well, the chairman of our Democratic Party in one of the counties around here just bought his son a new car with natural gas leasing money. You know, I mean, you know, so mm -hmm. these things are a lot more mixed at the local level than uh, is often portrayed. And I, I just think we need to all do a better job kind of not not falling into those stereotypes. But, you know, I guess what I'm trying to say is that at the same time, these people's votes are up for grabs. It is not hopelessly sorted into red and blue. We only it's not. It. Yeah. I mean, it, but you got to. You have to listen to them and speak to what they value. And if what they're telling us is, look, we want to work for a living. We want jobs. We want a fair paycheck. You know, we want better health care. Yes, but we don't want the government to decide which one it is for us. You know, we want to work in natural gas like we want. We want to do manufacturing like our fathers and grandfathers did. OK, that's what they want. And so I'm going to get to work trying to provide that. You know, it's just that's what the job is. You know, I, I spend most of my time pushing back against the um, the, the echo chamber, the, the the bubble on the right, which we've talked about extensively. But of course, there's also a bubble echo chamber on the left. And I remember some of the conversations that I had after the election, trying to t say to some some people on on the co on the coast that you know. Um, 
when you start debating the proper, you know, use of pronouns and when the public debate becomes who gets to use which bathroom, it, it sort of signals that you're not paying attention to working class voters in Michigan and Pennsylvania. And when you double down by accusing them of having certain privilege when they their factory may have closed and they're trying to struggle, you know, how, how to put their kid through college or, you know, get their brother-in-law off of opioids. You know, you know, people going on television talking about uh, white privilege is just, you know, it, 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 it's it's tone deaf. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you, I got a lot of people pushing back on me that, you know, this is just wrong. These are you know important issues. These are civil rights issues. And I was just trying to explain that this is how this sounds. And I'm not sure that a lot of people on the left fully get that even now. What, what do you think? No, I, I agree. And I, that's why I think, I don't think it comes from any sort of um, bad intention uh, mm. by those people, but I think it's the same estrangement that was, you know, kind of implied in your earlier questions is like, let's not talk about most of America. Um, like this is some kind of sociology report. All right. These are, these are real people that, that live in the area that I represent and I, I represent them. And, uh, the job is to listen to what they actually want and what's important in their lives. People of all types, white and black, working class, middle class, whatever. But in my own limited experience, when I do that, you know, every week, week in, week out, going all these different events, no matter how large, how small town halls, you just, you don't hear people bring stuff like that up. They, they don't bring up pronouns or political correctness or bathrooms or whatever, you know, they just ask you about the, the basics in their life and what you're trying to do to fix that. So if, if a lot of Americans are frustrated as I am about the lack of productivity in Washington, the gridlock, the fact that it seems like we're paying all these representatives to go down there and hold press conferences and not actually mm-hmm. get it's done, you know, it might be a decent idea to just start from the standpoint of, okay, what, what are the three or four areas that it seems like we can really break through with an all American, you know, bipartisan agenda. What are the things that most people agree on? And if, if you wake up every morning thinking of that, you pretty quickly get to issues of paychecks, pension, the cost of prescription drugs, you know, these basic things that we know infrastructure, you just, you don't end up spending time on the sort of debates that you're talking about. And I, to me, that's the difference between a practical legislator and someone who's more of you know, an activist or wants to be kind of a figure in the overall culture, which is a fine thing too, but they're, they're two really different jobs and we have to understand the difference between those two things. Uh, okay. And let me ask you an awkward question <laughs> and maybe the answer is completely self-evident, but one of the times that I was name checking you early on was I was saying, why, why are the Democrat, why are we talking about AOC all the time in the squad? Why are we not talking about Abigail Spanberger and Connor Lamb? Because these are the folks that actually delivered the Democratic majority. If you ran AOC in 90% of the districts of this country, she would be blown out. And yet it's her picture on the cover of all these magazines when, in fact, if I'm the Democratic Party, I'm saying, no, 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 no. It's Connor Lamb and Abigail Spanberger. So I don't know. So how come AOC is on the cover of Time Magazine and not you? Right. Um, <laughs> that's that's just not a question that, that I can answer. Uh, and I'm, I'm not so sure I'm I'm uh, upset about the result either. I mean, a lot of times I feel like in, in Washington, at least, it's probably easier to get things done if you're not mm-hmm. uh, the highest profile person. But yeah, we've I've I've done a comedy routine here at home for charity where you just you read out the different labels that people put on me from the beginning and they were not the kind of thing that 
get you on the cover of, of Time Magazine. Probably the best was the, I think it was a writer from the Atlantic that said, Connor Lamb looks like the type of guy that Taylor Swift would dump in a music video. Um, and, I, and I just said, hey, at least I was, if she dumped me, at least I was in the game. That's pretty good. Yeah, it just struck me as a, I don't know whether it was the, the media, you blame the media for this or whether it was a messaging issue, but uh, the the amount the amount of time focused on the the squad and the way Republicans love this. I mean, if you're Fox News, if you are, you know, on, on, on the right, this is who you want the Democratic Party to be and you want to focus on all of them. And it, it seemed, uh, well, it seemed to be counterproductive. So before we move on to it, because I do want to talk about what you want to accomplish in the next Congress and what and what advice you would give to Joe Biden. But um, and, and talk about the the, the, st- the stimulus relief packages. But could you just talk to me a little bit about the way the gun issue plays in your district as opposed to the way it plays nationally in Democratic Party politics? I think the, the way that it plays here versus nationally is, is probably just that we have a much higher percentage of people who own guns, are familiar with guns, are comfortable with them, grew up with them. Uh, whether, you know, through hunting or just liking them or serving in the military or whatever. Um, And so, you know, you're just going to start out from the standpoint of people saying, you know, not only do I like my gun, I'm I'm happy I own it, all that stuff, but I'm obeying the rules here. You know, it's just another, this tends to be another debate where people feel like they're being blamed or held accountable for someone else's misbehavior when they are following the rules and doing things the right way. And so, um, that makes it, it makes it a hard and it's obviously all the political machinations of the NRA and these different groups make it a very toxic debate. But at the end of the day, you know, what it means is that I think to be successful, uh, whatever policy we pursue has to be, um, not only clear and easy to understand, but it really does have to be targeted at the issue of reducing violent crime and shootings, you know, and, and some of the things that, that people on the left push here are not actually the best data-driven solutions for reducing violent crime. And that, that makes it, you know, just hard for people that like their gun and, and have always had one to say, well, why are you taking away something from me if it doesn't actually, you know, help us accomplish the mission that you, you say you want? Well, that's, that's exactly the way it plays in places like, I think, Michigan and Wisconsin as well. That's very familiar. I think a lot of this, doesn't this come down to just respect, that people want to be respected? They don't want to think that people despise them or look down on them. I think that's right. Yeah. And I, I you know, I also... I think not everyone agrees with me on this, but I think people have a basic sense of of good policy versus bad policy. I really do. You know, so many political discussions end up de- being about optics and messaging and, you know, mm-hmm. all the cosmetic stuff. But I think people deep down know that imposing gun rules on them or uh, trying to defund the police or trying to get rid of all fossil fuels I think they not only know that they don't like it, I think they know that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense and mm-hmm. <laughs> they want to be for policies that, uh, you know, actually sort of improve the well-being of the whole community. I think the people are sort of fair minded that way. Um, so, yeah, I know, it makes it hard. But so right right now and, and, and we're, you know, in the, in the middle of December and a lot of, the, you know, obviously you know, we're t- we've been talking about what's going on with the presidential election. But I imagine you're hearing from a lot of folks about what's happening with the coronavirus and the expiration of unemployment benefits and the relief program. So to talk to me right now about where we are at and, and what happens if Congress doesn't do anything in terms of passing a not really a stimulus, but it's, it's kind of a relief package. If, if, if they don't if they don't advance this, what what's going to happen in districts like yours over the next several months? 
people are going to suffer. Uh, they already are suffering. Um, it's just that simple. I mean, you have people who are have been out of work for a pretty long time now, rising number of jobless claims every week, people who are running out of food. I mean, literally increased cases of people stealing food because they're so desperate. Um, and then on top of that, you know, what's really behind this whole discussion of state and local government funding uh, is we're going to have more people lose their jobs. You know, the state and local governments in this country employ a lot of people, just a lot. And it, it, they are running out of money, you know, just making this very concrete here. Our state department of transportation has announced all of the road and bridge projects that they were going to do that they're not going to do now because they aren't collecting enough money from the gas tax because people aren't driving as much, right? We can all relate to that. And so behind all of those projects are entire crews of people that work for paving companies and road and bridge contractors and carpenters and laborers and equipment operators and stuff. And they're not going to work because of that. And by the way, construction projects are being postponed and canceled left and right because of the same problems in the private markets. And so People are really going to suffer in their jobs, in their income, in their basic needs. And one of the points, you know, many of us sort of at the center of the Democratic Party and center of Republican Party have been making for at least six months or more is this is something where time really matters. And that's why it, it made no sense for either side to hold out as long as they have held out for this sort of perfect partisan messaging bill type thing, because people have suffered in the meantime. And that's not right. And by the way, they, they tend to hold us all to blame for that. Do, do you wish that uh, Nancy Pelosi would have cut a deal before the election? Absolutely. I, I, I think I would, I would say a little bit more precisely is I wish she would have done more to try to get a deal into law. Uh, what I watched in September was Steve Mnuchin make a very public offer of about $1.8 trillion. Mm-hmm. And Pelosi and Schumer were at, I think, 2.1. I mean, it was a really a small difference in light of all these things. And myself and others were communicating to her, just put that on the floor. You know, I, McConnell never committed to it. I get that. Like, mm-hmm. he's a totally different beast. But if you have the administration and a Democratic House supporting an actual piece of legislation, that gets a lot harder for him, especially before the election, when a lot of his members were up for re-election and their calculus was different. And so I think it was a huge missed opportunity. So what do you think will happen after after Donald Trump leaves office? Joe Biden is the president. Um, You have a very, very narrow majority in the House of Representatives. We don't know who controls the Senate. Is that Congress, is that new lineup going to be able to pass these kinds of relief packages? Or will will Mitch McConnell revert to, I'm going to obstruct, obstruct everything? I'm willing to have people suffer if it causes political damage. And will Republicans in the House suddenly discover that they're fiscal conservatives again? Or will there be some sort of a, hey, we're all in this together. We're all Americans. We have to fix this problem. What, which, which way are we going on this? Yeah, I don't think anyone can can predict or control what McConnell is going to do. Uh, let me say that up front. But I, I think what we can do is try to control the things we can control and put ourselves in the strongest possible position to deliver for the people that we say we represent. You know, again, the Democratic Party still says that it is the party of the working and middle class person, you know, who are striving for a better life for themselves and their families. And so we really have to be on their side of every issue. And, you know, to go back to where we started this conversation, there are 90 Republicans in the House who did not sign on to that ridiculous brief in the Supreme Court. There's a smaller number than uh, than that who I truly believe have gettable votes on a lot of basic Mm. types of legislation. You know, just this 
this current COVID negotiation that's happening right now. A lot of it's being driven by a group of House members that I'm part of that is 25 Democrats and 25 Republicans. It's called the Problem Solvers Caucus. That's kind of what got this off the ground in the House. Uh, 25 Republicans is a lot. If you look at that as your universe to try to help you get things through the House. And if bills are going from the House to Senate with 10, 15, 20 Republicans on, mm. we're putting McConnell in a much tougher place than he has been previously. And, you know, I think to me, what I see from these COVID negotiations is an example of how, you know, if if it's McConnell versus liberal messaging bill, I don't see that a whole lot happens. That's kind of a lesson of the last two years. If it's McConnell versus common sense, easy to understand bipartisan bill, hmm. you know, sooner or later, he's going to pay the consequences for that. So you mentioned the Democrats have to be the, the, the party of the working class. What does that mean? Everybody wants that mantle. This is, of course, you know, the, the, the Trumps say, you know, I'm, I am the vo- voice of the of the forgotten man. Um, the left wing of your party would insist that we are the representative of the working people. So what what is your definition? What does the Democratic Party have to do to be the party of the working man, which, of course, politically will have tremendous consequences in, in, in the upper Midwest because those votes are in play. So. What, 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 is, what is your agenda there? Well, you know, I think what's, what's at the root of all this is very simple. People want to make more money, right? And they want to keep make more of the money that they make. I mean, that's the essential American dream, uh, the way that people strive to build a better future for themselves and their families. And so what's really happening here is, is a competition between the sort of Donald Trump theory of the economy and uh, the theory of the economy that has been um, a little bit more government centric coming from the Democratic side in terms of we're going to give you this, we're going to give you Medicare, we're going to do a trend, you know, what they call a just transition in jobs where the government's going to make sure you have a job or, you know, even something like a universal basic income like Andrew Yang um, called for that became sort of in the in the air for the Democrats and and people told us they weren't buying it. And it just so happens that a lot of people really did live through an economy under Trump that they felt was strong and where they earned more and they felt like they had more opportunities. I mean, there's been some incredible reporting about what the natural gas industry did in Virginia, just or, or West Virginia, I'm sorry, just in this two year period where the number of jobs you know, went up exponentially and all these people who were earning $10 were all of a sudden earning $30. And was, you know, that's real. People lived through that. And so they supported Trump. Um, but then you see in the same election, this minimum wage law in Florida passed by like 20 points. So, mm-hmm. you know, I say you look at that and let's just not, let's not be too academic. You know, we don't have to take the college professor or active activist position on every issue. If people <laughs> want to earn more money and keep more of their money, uh, we really can offer that to them. You know, we're going to raise the minimum wage. We're going to bring down the cost of your prescription drugs. Uh, and we're going to work tirelessly to create middle-class jobs in your community, whether it's through infrastructure whether it's through improving these trade deals to get more manufacturing base at home through a sensible energy policy. I mean, we have options. And I think that's why Biden did so well is he, you know, he talked about that kind of stuff. And it's become almost a joke under, under Trump uh, infrastructure week, but uh, would you urge the Biden administration to advance a major infrastructure plan that might have bipartisan support? Not only would I urge them to do it, I I would urge them that it's probably one of our only options. You Mm -hmm. know, if we lose the Senate seat, uh, we have to do things that have broad bipartisan support. We, we are in the middle of an economic and a public health crisis. We do not have the option to do nothing and to do partisan messaging and, you know, to continue the, the gridlock. And, um, you know, if you're looking 
seriously at this economy and you have a lot of people out of work, a lot of people who are at work that aren't earning enough, um, probably the best thing we can do is, is help get some real public investment into the water and, and get people back, not just earning money, but earning a union wage and a union healthcare benefit and contributing to a union pension, which you can do on federal infrastructure projects through the law. And by the way, that's a great use of, of taxpayer dollars at the end of the day, and you can combine it with private dollars, but it really does lead to economic development. We've seen that through the course of American history. Um, whereas, you know, continuing to cut the estate tax by more and, and cut the corporate rate even further and, you know, do the things that Mitch McConnell wants to do, it has no return for the the average person, right? I mean, it leads to more stock buybacks and these these overinflated IPOs you've seen the last couple of days. There's just too much cash sloshing around at the top and not enough of it in the middle. And an infrastructure bill can help us fix that. I, I keep thinking that if, if if Donald Trump would have moved quickly to have a bipartisan infrastructure bill, um, he he might be getting ready to be sworn in for his second term. I never fully understood why he did not do that because that that seemed like a sweet spot for him, but. Uh, anyway, that's that's Donald Trump. Hey, Congressman, thank you so much. Connor Lamb from uh, Pennsylvania. I really appreciate all of your time today uh, on the podcast. It's great to talk to you, Charlie. I really appreciate you hearing me out. And, uh, you know, I just close by maybe saying I, I am a listener to your show. And I know one of, the, one of the uh, topics of debate sometimes is is the, the kind of future home of, of the type of people that listen to this show and maybe used to be mm-hmm. Republicans or independents now or whatever. And, you know, I hope people will. Um, keep an open mind going forward and just realize that, that there are a lot of us who are, uh, you know, interested in expanding our party and our coalition, even if it's not the party a lot further and being big 10 and, and trying to come to more of a kind of common sense, all American position. And that's something we're going to be working for in the year ahead. Well, well, that is exactly why I wanted to talk to you, Connor Lamb. Appreciate it. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back on Monday. And we will do this all over again.